there. You're listening to the Collective Church Podcast, recorded live at Collective Church in Roanoke, Texas, with co-lead pastors Courtney Clark and Megan Lawton. Enjoy the sermon. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, thank you for being here with us today, for keeping everyone safe as they came to church, and for blessing and protecting everyone who's at home watching the live stream. Please let everyone be safe and healthy, heal our sicknesses, help us to be here ready with open hearts, ready to hear from you. In your great name we pray, amen. All right, so if you ask my husband, he will confirm that I don't tend to stick with things if I am not sure I will master them. My mom goes back to a story from my childhood to illustrate this point. When I was three years old, I got so frustrated that my art skills didn't match my dad's that I gave up. Didn't want to color, didn't want to finger paint, didn't want to draw. I was done. Did not matter that my motor skills were barely developed or that my dad is a professional graphic designer. (laughs) I wasn't immediately great, not just good, but the best at being an artist, so I gave up. But I'm not great yet was my first thought when Rob asked Courtney and me to co-lead Collective Church. I felt overwhelmed and underqualified. We didn't go to seminary. Neither of us has 22 years of preaching experience. And we were both raised in traditions where women were welcome to lead Sunday school or facilitate a women's Bible study, but certainly weren't called by God to pastor a church. There's no way I was going to be, or there's no way I am going to be as good at being a preacher, let alone a pastor, as Rob. My pride and my insecurity both said, absolutely not. And then God reminded me of a few things. Moses first rejected God's call to lead the Israelites out of Egypt because of a speech impediment. Jonah hopped on a boat to Tarshish to avoid God's call to preach to the city of Nineveh. And Gideon questioned God's call to rescue his people from the Midianites because he was the weakest member of the weakest clan in Manasseh. But God told each of these prophets the same thing. It is not your power that matters, it's mine. So maybe there's room for two women who have been consistently told there's no place in biblical Christian leadership for them. Maybe in this specific season, God isn't looking for deep theological knowledge or extensive public speaking experience. Maybe this church can be sustained by two people and their husbands and lots of help from the members who love God and want to love his people well. So I set aside my pride and insecurity for a minute and I asked God, what does it mean for Courtney and I to help collective church continue to exist? What is the point of being here? I went back through Rob's sermons, old blog posts, and the stories he first wrote about the first few years of Collective Church's existence. I listened to the series 104 Houston Street, Part 1, on Collective Church's founding principles. I read and reread our vision statement. Collective Church seeks to be a community of Christ followers who live by faith, are known for their love, and are a voice of hope in this world. We submit to the Bible as God's written word and our authority in this world. I read and reread our six core values. The first is love. Love, above all else, we seek to embody Jesus's greatest commandment, which was to love. We believe that when in doubt, we should love. Love, so much of what Rob has taught over the past eight years has gone back to love. Loving God and loving one another. It's what Courtney and I found in this church that we had a hard time finding in any other church we've attended. It's what Jesus said is his greatest commandment, love God and love his people. So that's what today's sermon is going to be about. For the next three weeks, Courtney and I will be going through a part two of Rob's original sermon series, 104 Houston Street. We'll be answering the question, where do we go from here? For my part, 
I think the best thing we can do moving forward is continue this tradition of loving God and loving his people well. And that starts by remembering that God first loved us. But growing up, I didn't feel very loved by God. I knew it was important to show love and to be a source of love, but the God that I was taught about in church had a lot of conditions to meet before this love was earned. And I was far from a perfect Christian. And like I said before, if I can't do something perfectly the first try, I'd rather not do it. While I never felt good enough for God, I did feel like I was faking it well for a while. I was pretty good at being a good Christian. I grew up going to church. I was in Sunday school every week. I sat quietly in the back of the room, listening to my parents' small group discussions. I colored in the pictures of Peter walking on water and bread broken by Jesus to feed thousands. I knew all the words to Jesus loves me by age four and had John 3:16 memorized by age six. In middle school, it all seemed pretty straightforward. Avoid the unforgivable sins of underage drinking, drugs, and premarital sex. Ask forgiveness as soon as a curse word slips through your lips and don't gossip unless it's your Sunday school teacher talking to your mom about one of the other kids' parents, and then it's just reporting the facts. <laughs> Whenever given the opportunity, I sang God's praises and worked to convert as many lost sheep as possible. I avoided the unforgivable sins. I marked every box on the checklist. I was a good Christian until I wasn't. As I've said before, I lived with mental illness and wasn't diagnosed until a few years ago. One of the worst and longest depressive episodes I've experienced began the last two years of high school and went into my first year of college. And this was in the early 2000s when there was still a lot of stigma around mental illness. Anytime someone discussed depression in the church, it was quickly followed with a disclaimer that depression is a sign that you're living far from God because God is joy and peace. Depression is grown from doubt and sadness, which are not of God. If your depression lasts for more than a few days, it's because you're living in sin and or not praying hard enough to be healed. And of course, if you gave into your depression and committed suicide, it was a selfish act and a one-way ticket to hell. I've also mentioned before, I didn't tell anyone in my life about my sadness, what I now know was depression. It was a secret that I didn't let anyone in on. No one could know how selfish I was. No one could know what a bad Christian I was for doubting God and living in sadness. So I put on a fake smile and my secret grew into shame. In her 2012 TED Talk, Brene Brown calls shame the gremlin that says, never good enough, and who do you think you are? She continues, shame is highly, highly correlated with addiction, depression, violence, aggression, bullying, suicide, and eating disorders. Shame, for women, is a web of unattainable, conflicting, competing expectations about who we're supposed to be. She says shame needs three things to grow exponentially, secrecy, silence, and judgment. And unfortunately, the church culture of my childhood and adolescence let themselves to exactly those three things. And that's when things became a little more complicated. I ran out of verses to memorize. The answer to every question seemed to be, just have faith. The more my anxiety and depression grew, the farther I felt from God. I tried, I really did. I fought harder, sinned less, talked about Jesus more. I put on the mask of a good Christian girl, always smiling, never in serious pain. I sat with my youth group friends and made fun of the bad kids, partying on the weekends or making out just a little too long in the hallways. I never opened the door for condemnation, never allowed anyone to see the truth that I hadn't earned the love of God, and my shame grew. It became harder and harder to keep the mask on, 
And the more I felt like a bad Christian wearing a mask, the more I felt unloved by God, the less I loved myself. So I started looking for love other places. By the time I graduated high school, I had committed one of the unforgivable sins. I wasn't a virgin anymore. Hiding my depression was exhausting, but surprisingly easy. Hiding this information, not so much. My friends and awkwardly my family knew this detail. My mom gave me a book on godly relationships, which called premarital sex a detestable sin that essentially guaranteed the sinner a life of shame and singleness. I was destined to die alone, unloved, unless I did some serious repenting. But I was a teenager dealing with a lot of shame in a lot of different areas of my life, feeling unloved by my friends, family, and God. And at the time, I was willing to do whatever it took for a chance to be loved, or honestly, even just liked by the guys in my life. I've been called horrible names and a lost cause. I was told it's hypocritical for me to read my Bible or go to church and when I was so clearly living a lifestyle God hated. These weren't things said by cruel unbelievers. They were things said by my loving Christian friends. And the worst part is, I believed every one of those things about myself. By the time I got to college, I fully believed God did not, could not love me. I was filled with shame and honestly hated myself. Combine this with undiagnosed depression, easy access to alcohol, and a campus full of guys seemingly interested in me, and it is a recipe for some pretty dark nights, which became a few very dark years. And it turns out I am not the only one who had a tough time going to church after high school. According to Lifeway Research in 2019, 66% of Americans who attended a Protestant church regularly dropped out for at least a year between the ages of 18 and 22. One of the most of the five most common reasons given, two were church members who seemed judgmental or hypocritical and no longer feeling connected to the people in their church. For specific demographics, the church could be an unwelcoming or even unsafe place. In 2013, Pew Research showed 29% of LGBTQ plus Americans have been made to feel unwelcome in a place of worship. Unsurprisingly, the survey found LGBTQ plus adults tend to be less religious from the general population, with almost half claiming no religious affiliation. Those surveyed found most religious groups to be unfriendly towards the LGBTQ community, including evangelical and non-evangelical Protestant churches. Another Pew Research survey of the general public found among those who attend religious services at least weekly, two-thirds say homosexuality conflicts with their religious beliefs. What's the point of church? If it's about building community, this wasn't a community I wanted to be a, a part of. If it's about growing in a relationship with God, forcing people to hide and lie about their experiences, it's pretty counterintuitive. What kind of relationship is it if you have to hide your thoughts, feelings, and mistakes? I certainly don't want to be in a relationship with someone who believes my very existence is evil or sinful, especially if they're responsible for that existence. And it's not just our relationship with God that suffers. In a 2014 journal article, authors Patricia Urkamp and Caroline Nagel examine what they call the limits of welcome among Southern Christian communities of faith and recent immigrants. The authors argue that churches are political spaces where Christian ethics of hospitality come up against worldly social boundaries of race and legal status. The actual practice of hospitalities in, this church, in these churches falls short of biblical ideals. In other words, when the, church is, when the choice is between showing love and grace to immigrants arriving in the U.S. from south of the border or supporting immigration policies which serve to make life hard for these immigrant communities, Christian church members tend to choose their politics 
leaving us with churches that are largely unwelcome and unloving for Hispanic immigrants. And sometimes choosing perfection and the appearance of membership made up of good Christians can be downright dangerous. Despite a 2019 Institute for Family Studies report finding one in four couples report interpersonal violence in their current relationship, whether they were highly religious or not, a LifeWay research study on domestic abuse in the church found that when asked how they would handle a Christian church member filing for divorce and citing domestic violence as a cause, only 56% of pastors would believe domestic violence really happened. Because of the staunch anti-divorce stance, for any reason, held by most churches, I've seen attitudes echoing what I recently read in a meme which said, marriage is hard, divorce is hard, choose your hard. Because of the unwelcome, unloving attitudes like this, LifeWay Research found that at least one person stops attending a church in 73% of churches where members know a divorce has occurred. Seems a lack of love in church is a more common experience than I thought at 18. Growing up, I perceived a clear message. Pray hard enough and God will heal you. You'll no longer have physical or mental illness, no longer be gay, no longer feel the impact of living with an abusive spouse. And many of us come to believe Christianity is a fix for all the ailments of being someone who doesn't fit the picture-perfect version of who God, or really, the American Christian Church, has said you were meant to be. Pray hard enough, then you'll no longer be poor, no longer be an addict, no longer be an outcast. And if you are still living outside of grace, peace, happiness, or love, it must be your fault. And the result of this dangerous theology, a theology that gives a list of prerequisites to be loved, isn't just the majority of people being left to feel like they don't, can't, never will live up to the expectation of what it means to be a good Christian, though that would be harmful enough. The result is generations of people, entire demographics, anyone who can't meet the standard of normal Christianity being left to feel unwelcomed, unimportant, and unloved. There is a shame associated with imperfection, with being a woman, with the experiences that make you feel the need to apologize and repent because they're so sinful, or to accept your fate and know that you'll never be forgiven because of your choices, because these choices make it so that God can never love you. I wanna put this on the church I went to as a kid or the one I attended as a teenager, but it wasn't them. It was me. Accurate or not, these were the messages I believed I was given and the theology I accepted for myself, a theology that meant there was no room for God to love me. So what did I do? Well, I believed there was a list of conditions to me before God could possibly love me, so I didn't see a lot of options. I could change everything about myself. I could lie or I could leave. I tried to change and I could never reach that level of perfection needed to earn God's love. I tried to lie. I put on the mask of being a good Christian for as long as I could before I was found out. And then I left. I believed God had rejected me, so in turn, I rejected God. I didn't want anything to do with church or anyone who claimed to be a Christian. Since I didn't have God, I turned to people. People manage shame in different ways. Some overcompensate with arrogance, others hide in addiction, and I became the ultimate people pleaser. I didn't, want, I didn't believe that I was worthy of love, and I certainly didn't love myself. But maybe I could at least get people to like me. But the funny thing about making choices based on shame and insecurity is it tends to result in the opposite of what you want. Or at least it did for me. I was so clingy, <laughs> so needy, so emotionally dependent on other people from my sense of worth. I drove everyone away. I lost all my friends, 
The guys I'd spent two years in college begging to like me finally wanted nothing to do with me. My family was five hours away, and I was alone, trapped in the desert of Lubbock, Texas. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For the first time since I got to college, I didn't think going to a party would make me feel any better. So instead, I went to church. I'm not sure what I was looking for. I think I was just finally out of options. I didn't have anywhere else to go, and this was the one place where I at least knew I wasn't going to be running into a bunch of people I drunkenly embarrassed myself in front of the weekend before. I sat in the back row, of course, and while waiting for everyone to file in and find their seats, I sat on Facebook, Instagram wasn't a thing yet, and I looked at all the pictures from the party I'd chosen not to attend the night before. I was seriously questioning my choice to skip a night of drinking in favor of sitting alone at a place where I didn't know anyone, where I surely wasn't welcomed. When a girl put her hand in my face and said, hi, I'm Michelle. Michelle asked a little about me, and when I said it was my first time being back at church for a long time, she asked if I wanted to get coffee together. One coffee date became more, and soon she invited me to her small group. I told her I wasn't sure anyone would want me there, and she assured me that wouldn't be the case. Then through Michelle, I met several women who helped me get to know God in a new way. For the first time, I began to read the Bible on my own, not simply memorizing the verses that I was told were most important, but really trying to understand what God was saying in every chapter. And the more I read, the more I realized the Jesus I've been brought up to believe in, the one whose love is conditional, who gives a list of rules to follow and boxes to check before you're welcome inside a church. This isn't the Jesus of the Bible. The more I read, the more I realized that, oh, in fact, I learned the gospel wasn't written to be the weapon that had been wielded against me. It was written to be an invitation to know and love this God who had created me with love and kindness and grace. The God who says I am not defined by the worst mistakes I've made or created broken and given a small chance at finding healing. I was created whole and loved exactly as I was, exactly as I am. And the more I grew in relationship with God, the more time I spent in the word and prayer, the more I realized God does, not, God does see my emotions as valid. He loves me because of who I am, not in spite of it. God says, cast all your cares on him, not as a trick, but so that he can help us process and manage the parts of our minds and experiences that no longer serve us so we can become more of who we were always meant to be. I was in shock. I was so relieved and thankful and honestly, a little pissed off. Where was this God of forgiveness when I was crying alone in my room, told no one would ever love me? Where was this God of grace and peace when I was being called names and made to believe that my creator hated my very existence? I ran away from God because I was told he didn't love me. I came back to God because I realized he is so much bigger and better than the God I was raised to believe in. The small, sad God made to resemble the people teaching me about him. The God who, funny enough, hated all the same people our church members hated. The God who, conveniently, didn't want anyone to do or be the things that tend to make middle-class suburbanites uncomfortable. The God who would look at the child he created and say, you are not good enough. For the first time, I met the God of the gospel. The God who created me, who knew and loved me before he formed the earth's foundation. Who knew the mistakes I'd made and forgave me anyway. Past tense. He chose to forgive me before I was even born, and not in the way we tend to think of forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness that requires a sincere apology but still holds a grudge, 
but real, true forgiveness based in Christ's salvation and God's eternal, unimaginable, bigger than we can comprehend love. I learned to love a God who loved me first. It was a slow process, but it changed everything. And from then on, I had no patience for Christians who claimed Christ's name while making his children believe they were unloved. And yet, that's what I continued to find. Churches refusing to admit attendees who are gay or divorced or unmarried with children. Christians who knew they couldn't go to anyone at the church for help with their addiction, abusive relationships, or mental illness. I've spoken with so many people who are in the exact place I was, running from a God they were told to believe in, a God who hates and condemns them for who they are or what they've done. But that is not my God, and it is not the God of Collective Church. Courtney and I are not Rob. We don't have seminary degrees or decades of preaching experience. There are absolutely limitations on our ability to lead this church effectively. It's part of why we are so grateful to Rob and Chris Gibson and why we're keeping such a strong emphasis on guest speakers. What Courtney and I can do is love people well. We can create a safe, loving place where it's okay to show up exactly as you are, where it's okay to be messy and imperfect. And if you are looking for polished perfection, you are not going to like me very much. When Rob told us he was stepping away from Collective Church, Courtney and I felt overwhelmed and underqualified. And we are still those things, honestly. But we know what this church means to ourselves and our families, and we know it's a space worth fighting for. We've been loved and welcomed at our low points. We've been celebrated and supported at our high points. We know families can be complicated and church trauma is real. And we do not take lightly the privilege of facilitating this community. For many of our members, this is the family they've chosen because their biological families or former churches were no longer safe. There are many churches we're doubting, questioning, making mistakes, sometimes even just being honest about who you are as a person makes you unwelcome or means there will forever be an asterisk by your name. But that is not the kind of community that I want to be a part of. There are days when I don't like God, when I'm mad about how things are going, when I doubt his love, and there are days when I doubt God exists at all. But since attending Collective Church, I have never felt those thoughts or feelings precluded me from showing up on a Sunday morning. I have never had to worry about letting the wrong thoughts slip within these walls because Rob built a community where questions are and doubts are welcome, where it's okay to have big feelings. God can handle our confusion, doubt, and anger, and so can Collective Church. And that is the commitment Courtney and I make to you all. We, want, we will continue to foster that safe space. We will continue to be a refuge for the brokenhearted, to be a source of healing and love for everyone who chooses to walk through the doors or engage with us online. Whether you're single, married, in a long-term unmarried relationship, divorced, widowed, in an open or polyamorous relationship, you are welcome here. If you've been an alcoholic for the last 40 years or done every drug under the sun, if you had children outside of marriage or even an abortion, you are welcome here. If you're a member of the LGBTQ community, whatever that looks like, gay, trans, non-binary, intersex, or you love someone who's queer, you are welcome here. If you're a survivor of sexual assault or abuse, if you're an ex-offender, regardless of documentation status or political affiliation, whether you were raised Catholic, Protestant, in another religion, or without religion, if you're currently an atheist, agnostic, or have no idea what category you fit into, you are welcome here, and you are loved. God loves you, we love you. Whoever you are, whatever your experience, you are welcome here. 
So may you know this, deep in your soul, you are loved. You were created in the image of perfection. God knew exactly who you would be and what you would do in this life, and he loves you. May you show others the love God has given you. May you see the image of God in every person you encounter. And may you see the image of God in yourself. May you find grace and peace and love and acceptance here. May you find a community of believers who love you as God loves you. And may you, being rooted and established in love, have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Let us pray. Our great, loving, wonderful God, thank you for creating us in your perfection. Thank you for loving us exactly who, as we are, for creating us knowing who we would be and loving and forgiving us anyway. Thank you for creating a safe space and collective church where everyone can come broken or perfect, seeking or having found what they were always looking for. Please let each one of us show your love to everyone who walks in the door or finds us online or who we just encounter in our daily lives. May we always know your love and show it to others. May we continue to love ourselves because you loved us first. In your great name we pray. Amen. Grace and peace be with you. This has been the Collective Church Podcast. We post episodes every week on Sundays. If you're interested in supporting our church, you can give at collectivechurch.net slash give. I hope you enjoyed listening.